Well, we'll get started right here pretty quick with uh, some Yo-Yo Ma and Suite for Solo Cello number one in G major, and that is Prelude. As we start talking about David and Goliath, and I'm going to be reading from Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And Malcolm Gladwell's piece on Goliath here at the beginning of his book is very interesting. So I'm going to get right into it. As you're listening to Lighthouse Podcast, I'm Ty Nickel. And I wanted to give you the perspective that Malcolm had on David and Goliath and how that David was not really an underdog. And he will get into explaining that. So, at the heart of ancient Palestine is the region known as the Shephelah, a series of ridges and valleys connecting the Judean mountains to the east with the wide, flat expanse of the Mediterranean plain. It's an area of breathtaking beauty, home to vineyards and wheat fields and forests, of sycamore and terebinth. It's also of great strategic importance. Over the centuries, numerous battles have been fought for control of the region because of the valleys rising from the Mediterranean plain, offering those on the coast a clear path to the cities of Hebron, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem in the Judean highlands. The most important valley is Algelon, in the, or Aijalon, as Malcolm has it here, in the north. But the most storied is the Ella. The Ella is where Saladin faced off against the knights of the Crusades in the 12th century. It played a central role in the Maccabean Wars with Syria more than a thousand years before that. And most famously during the days of the Old Testament, it was where the fledgling kingdom, fledgling kingdom of Israel squared off against the armies of the Philistines. The Philistines were from Crete, which is funny because that's, I've been to Crete, and it's, it's interesting to uh, visit uh, the regions uh, around Crete and think about the history there and uh, the uh, island of Spinalonga, and where they had, it was actually a leper island that was used strategically for military battles. And uh, the Cretes or the, Phil the Cretans well, or the Philistines were a seafaring people who had moved to uh, Palestine and settled along the coast and the Israelites were clustered in the mountains under the leadership of King Saul. In the second half of the 11th century uh, BC, the Philistines began moving east, winding their way upstream along the floor of the Ella Valley. Their goal was to capture the mountain ridge near Bethlehem and split Saul's kingdom in two. The Philistines were battle-tested and dangerous and the sworn enemies of the Israelites. Alarmed, Saul gathered his men and hastened down from the mountains to confront them. 
The Philistines set up camp along the southern ridge of the Ella. The Israelites pitched their tents on the other side, along the northern ridge, which left the two armies looking across the ravine at each other. Neither dared to move. To attack meant descending down the hill and then making a suicidal climb up the enemy's ridge on the other side. Finally, the Philistines had enough. They sent their greatest warrior down into the valley to resolve the deadlock one-on-one. He was a giant, six foot nine at least, wearing a bronze helmet and full body armor. He carried a javelin, a spear, and a sword. An attendant preceded him, carrying a large shield. The giant faced the Israelites and shouted, Choose you a man and let him come down to meet me. If he prevail in battle against me and strike me down, we shall be slaves to you. But if I prevail and strike him down, you will be slaves to us and serve us. In the Israelite camp, no one moved. Who could win against such a terrifying opponent? Then, a shepherd boy, who had come down from Bethlehem to bring food to his brothers, stepped forward and volunteered. Saul objected. You can't go against this Philistine to do battle with him. For you are a lad, and he is a man of war from his youth. But the shepherd was adamant. He had faced more ferocious opponents than this, he argued. When the lion or or the bear would come and carry off a sheep from the herd, he told Saul, I would go after him and strike him down and rescue it from its clutches. Saul had no other options. He relented, and the shepherd boy ran down the hill toward the giant standing in the valley. Come to me, that I may give your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, the giant cried out when he saw his opponent approach. Thus began began one of history's most famous battles. The giant's name was, obviously, Goliath. The shepherd boy's name was obviously David. So, I will move on into the second part of Gladwell's book and and try to pick up where we would be interested in. So, when Goliath shouted out to the Israelites, he was asking for what was known as single combat. This was a common practice in the ancient world. Two sides in conflict would seek to avoid heavy bloodshed of open battle by choosing one warrior to represent each in a duel. For example, the first century BC Roman historian Quintus Claudius Quadrigarius tells of an epic battle in which a Gaul warrior began mocking his Roman opponents. This immediately aroused the great indignation of one Titus Manlius, a youth of, of the highest birth, Quadrigarius writes, Titus challenged the Gaul to a duel. And he says he stepped forward and would not suffer Roman valor to be shamefully tarnished by a Gaul. I believe the Gauls are the French. Armed with a legionary shield and a Spanish sword, he confronted the Gaul. Their fight took place on the very bridge over the Anya River. 
in the presence of both armies amid great apprehension. Thus they confronted each other, the Gaul according to his method of fighting, with shield advanced and awaiting an attack. Manlius, relying on courage rather than skill, struck shield against shield and threw the Gaul off balance. While the Gaul was trying to regain the same position, Manlius again, again struck shield against shield and again forced the man to change his ground. In this fashion, he slipped under the Gaul's sword. He slipped under the Gaul's sword and stabbed him in the chest with his Spanish blade. After he had slain him, Manlius cut off the Gaul's head, tore off his tongue, and put it, covered as it was with blood, around his own neck. This is what Goliath was expecting. A warrior like himself to come forward for hand-to-hand -hand combat. It never occurred to him that the battle would be fought on anything other uh, than those terms, and he prepared accordingly. For Goliath to protect himself against blows to the body, he wore an elaborate tunic made up of hundreds of overlapping bronze fish-like scales. It covered his arms and reached to his knees and probably weighed more than 100 pounds. He had bronze shin guards protecting his legs with attached bronze plates covering his feet. He wore a heavy metal helmet. He had three separate weapons, all optimized for close combat. He held a thrusting javelin made entirely of bronze, which was capable of penetrating a shield or even armor. He had a sword on his hip, and as his primary option, he carried a special kind of short-range spear with a metal shaft as thick as a weaver's beam. It had a cord attached to it and an elaborate set of weights that allowed it to be released with extraordinary force and accuracy. As the historian Moshe Garsel writes, to the Israelites, this extraordinary spear with its heavy shaft plus long and heavy iron blade when hurled by Goliath's strong arm seemed capable of piercing any bronze shield and bronze armor together. Can you now see why no Israelite would come forward to fight Goliath? Then David appears. Saul tries to give him his own sword and armor, so at least he'll have a fighting chance. David refuses. I cannot walk in these, he says, for I'm unused to it. Instead, he reaches down and picks up five smooth stones and puts them in his shoulder bag. Then he descends into the valley. Carrying his shepherd's staff, Goliath looks at the boy coming toward him and is insulted. He was expecting to do battle with a seasoned warrior. Instead, he sees a shepherd, a boy from one of the lowliest of all professions, who seems to want his, wants to use his shepherd's staff as a cudgel against Goliath's sword. Am I a dog? Goliath says, gesturing at the staff that you should come to me with sticks. What happens next is a matter of legend. David puts one of his stones into the leather pouch of a sling and he fires at Goliath's exposed forehead. Goliath falls, stunned. 
David runs toward him, seizes the giant's sword, and cuts off his head. The Philistines saw that their warrior was dead. The biblical account reads, and they fled. The battle is won miraculously by an underdog who, by all expectations, should not have won at all. This is the way we have told one another the story over many centuries since. It is how the phrase David and Goliath has, be, has come to be embedded in our language as a metaphor for improbable victory. And the problem with that version of the events is that it, almost everything about it is wrong. So Gladwell continues to go on, and he's going to explain this, and this is why I find it fascinating for our discussion about this aspect of what David knew and what he was going to do. So Gladwell continues, Ancient armies had three kinds of warriors. The first was cavalry, armed men on horseback or in chariots. The second was infantry, foot soldiers wearing armory and carrying swords and shields. The third were projectile warriors, or what would today be called artillery, archers, and the most important, slingers. Slingers had a leather pouch attached on two sides by a long strand of rope. They would put a rock or a lead ball into the pouch swinging it around in increasingly wider and faster circles, and then release one on the end of the rope, hurling the rock forward. Slinging took an extraordinary amount of skill and practice, but in experienced hands, the sling was a devastating weapon. Paintings from medieval times show slingers hitting birds in mid-flight. Irish slingers were said to be able to hit a coin from as far away as they could see it. And in the Old Testament book of Judges, slingers are described as being accurate within a hair's breadth. An inexperienced an, an slinger could kill or seriously injure a target at a distance of up to 200 yards. The Romans even had a special set of tongs made just to remove stones that had been embedded in some poor soldier's body by a sling. Imagine standing in front of a Major League Baseball pitcher as he aims a baseball at your head. That's what facing a slinger was like. Only what was being thrown at you was not a ball of cork and leather, but of solid rock. The historian Baruch Halpern argues that the sling was of such importance in ancient warfare that the three kinds of warriors balanced one another like each gesture in the game of rock, paper, and scissors. With their long pikes and armor, infantry could stand up to cavalry. Cavalry could, in turn, defeat projectile warriors because the horses moved too quickly for artillery to take proper aim. And projectile warriors were deadly against infantry because a big lumbering soldier weighed down with armor, was a sitting duck for a slinger who was launching projectiles from 100 yards away. This is why the Athenian expedition to Sicily failed in the Peloponnesian War, Halpern writes. Thucydides describes at length how Athens' heavy infantry 
was decimated in the mountains by the local light infantry, principally using the sling. Goliath is heavy infantry. He thinks that he's going to be engaged in a duel with another heavy infantryman, in the same manner as Titus Manlius's fight with the Gaul. When he says, Come to me, that I may give your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, the key phrase is, Come to me. He means come right up to me so that we can fight at close quarters. When Saul tries to dress David in armor and give him a sword, he is operating under the same assumption. He assumes David is going to fight Goliath hand to hand. David, however, has no intention of honoring the rituals of single combat. When he tells Saul that he has killed bears and lions as a shepherd, he does not he does so not just as a testimony to his courage, but to make another point, that he intends to fight Goliath in the same way he has learned to fight wild animals as a projectile warrior. David runs toward Goliath, because without armor, he has speed and maneuverability. He puts a rock into his sling and whips it around and around faster and faster at six or seven revolutions per second aiming his projectile at Goliath's forehead. The giant's only point of vulnerability. Eitan Hirsch, a ballistics expert with the Israeli Defense Forces, recently did a series of calculations showing that a typical sized stone hurled by an expert slinger at a distance of 35 meters would have hit Goliath's head with a velocity of 34 meters per second, more than enough to penetrate his skull and render him unconscious or dead. In terms of stopping power, that's the equivalent to a fair-sized modern handgun. We find, Hirsch writes, that David could have slung and hit Goliath in little more than one second, a time so brief that Goliath would not have been able to project or protect himself, rather, and during which he would be stationary for all practical purposes. What could Goliath do? He was carrying over a hundred pounds of armor. He was prepared for a battle at close range, and he would and he could stand immobile, warding off blows with his armor and delivering a mighty thrust of his spear. He watched David approach, first with scorn, then with surprise, then with what can only have been horror. As it dawned on him, that the battle he was expecting had suddenly changed shape. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, David said to Goliath, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give all of you into our hands. Twice David mentions Goliath's sword and spear, as if to emphasize how profoundly different his intentions are. Then he reaches into his shepherd's bag for a stone, and at that point no one watching from the ridges on either side of the valley would have considered David's victory improbable. David was a slinger, and slingers beat infantry 
hands down. Goliath had as much chance against David, the historian Robert Dowrand writes, as any Bronze Age warrior with a sword would have had against an opponent armed with a 45 caliber automatic pistol. Why has there been so much misunderstanding around that day in the Valley of Ella? On one level, the duel reveals the folly of our assumptions about power. The reason King Saul is skeptical of David's chances is that David is small and Goliath is large. Saul thinks of power in terms of physical might. He doesn't appreciate that power can come in other forms as well, in breaking rules, in substituting speed and surprise for strength. Saul isn't alone in making this mistake. In the pages that follow, Gladwell says, I'm going to argue that we continue to make that error today in ways that have consequences for everything from how we educate our children to how we fight crime and disorder. But there's a second deeper issue here. Saul and the Israelites think they know who Goliath is. They size him up and jump to conclusions about what they think he's capable of, but they don't really see him. The truth is that Goliath's behavior is puzzling. He is supposed to be a mighty warrior, but he's not acting like one. He comes down to the valley floor accompanied by an attendant, a servant walking before him carrying a shield. Shield bearers in ancient times often accompanied accompanied archers into battle because a soldier using a bow and arrow had no free hand to carry any kind of protection on his own. But why does Goliath, a man calling for sword-on-sword single combat, need to, need to be assisted by a third party carrying an archer's shield? What's more, why does he say to David, come to me? Why can't Goliath go to David? The biblical account emphasizes how slowly Goliath moves, which is an odd thing to say about someone who is alleged to be a battle hero of infinite strength. In any case, why doesn't Goliath respond much sooner to the sight of David coming down the hillside without any sword or shield or armor? When he first sees David, his reaction is to be insulted when he should be terrified. He seems oblivious of what's happening around him. There is, an even, there is even that strange comment after he finally spots David with his shepherd's staff. Am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Sticks, plural? David is holding only one stick. What many medical experts now believe, in fact, is that Goliath had a serious medical condition. He looks and sounds like someone suffering from what is called acromegaly, a disease caused by a benign tumor of the pituitary gland. The tumor causes an overproduction of human growth hormone, which would explain Goliath's extraordinary size. The tallest person in history, Robert Wadlow, suffered from acromegaly. At his death, he was 8 foot 11 inches and apparently still growing. And furthermore, one of the common side effects of acromegaly is vision problems. Pituitary tumors can grow to the point where they compress the nerves leading to the eyes, with the result that people with acromegaly often suffer from severely restricted sight and diplopia. <laughs> 
or double vision. Why was Goliath led onto the valley by uh, valley floor by an attendant? Because the attendant was his visual guide. Why does he move so slowly? Because the world around him is a blur. Why does it take him so long to understand that David has changed the rules? Because he doesn't see David until David's up close. Come to me, that I may give your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, he shouts out. And in that request, there is a hint of his vulnerability. I need you to come to me because I cannot locate you otherwise. And then there is the otherwise inexplicable, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? But again, David had only one stick when Goliath saw two. What the Israelites saw from on high on that ridge, or from high on that ridge, rather, was an intimidating giant. In reality, the very thing that gave the giant his size was also the source of his greatest weakness. There's an important lesson in that for battles with all kinds of giants. The powerful and strong are not always what they seem. David came running toward Goliath, powered by courage and faith. Goliath was blind to his approach, and then he was down, too big and slow to, and blurry-eyed to comprehend the way the tables had been turned. All these years we've been telling these kinds of stories. But they're wrong. David and Goliath is about getting them right. So you have here in Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, you have this part uh, with the description of the battle between David and Goliath. And so we use this description to think of also the idea of Jesus being the one who represents us as he is the one, like David, who goes down into the valley to fight the Goliaths of any age, especially of our era. But yet, often we mistake what the Goliaths of our era really are. We don't really understand that they're not really uh, infinitely strong. We don't really understand that they have limits and we forget that the God who we fight for doesn't have limits and that God will be able to take the battle and take the war and take the victory through Jesus. This is something that is a simple lesson but that we all need to try to learn very difficult from our perspective when we see giants. But we need to recognize that the giants that threaten us, the Lord has a different impression of those. So we need to identify them and not make the same error that King Saul or the Israelite armies made. And we need to have keen observations like Jesus because Jesus is the one who fights for us. He is the representative that we have on our side who's already won the battle, the war, who's already become victorious. And this is why we can be joyful and be strong in dark times. So what we need to do is, again, think of David and Goliath and maybe 
a different way, as Malcolm Gladwell suggests. And we need to think of our own relationship with God, perhaps, in a different way, and stop maybe thinking that we are without help in the day of trouble. Uh, this is difficult for all of us. But Jesus is there, and we need to trust him. Just as an Olympian today goes to represent their country in the Olympics, uh, we can see Jesus has represented us. And we need to recognize Jesus as the one who has been meddled, and there are no others that win and so we need to understand more and more how strong Jesus really is. Thank you for listening to this episode of David and Goliath and looking at it from a slightly different angle and how we can understand God and Jesus perhaps from a, another different angle that helps you to be encouraged, to helps us all to look into the future with joyful hearts.